1: what's up y'all this is Zach with Living Corporate and yo so look every week we have a crate guest so like I'm not and I, and I say this every time but like don't front who else but us like we drop gems on Living Corporate right for the free like y'all don't even pay nothing for this right like we just we just be giving it to y'all weekly and you know I mean I'm smiling despite the pain that I'm feeling the frustration you know for those who follow me on LinkedIn or whatever like I had to let some things go because I was just upset. I really had to. I I, I still have some stuff to say, but I'm going to wait on it. I'm going to wait on it for a couple more months. Uh, But that day is soon coming. But anyway, that's a story for another time. (laughs) Look, even with all the pain and frustration that's going on right now um, with the continuous uh, brutalization of black bodies and uh, both uh, white America at large and corporate America uh, specifically, they're just slew footed shuffle. And not really addressing systemic inequity. I'm excited about the guest that we were able to have that was able to grace our platform, our flagship show, Living Corporate, today. And the guest we have is Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I look, I'm not going to go into some long biography of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones, also known as Ida Bay Wells, um, is one of the most prolific writers of our time. Um, shout out to black women. Uh, she holds it down. Uh, she advocates and speaks to the reality and lived experience, the historicity of our struggle. And she's one of the people like she comes from a similar, just like humble background that I do um, and and doesn't tolerate disrespect. Similarly, how I don't tolerate disrespect. So we just vibe on a certain level. I appreciated our conversation. The next thing you're going to hear is the discussion, the interview that I had with uh, Miss Hannah Jones. Make sure that you listen to the whole thing. Make sure that you check out the show notes and uh, we'll catch y'all next time. Peace. Nicole, welcome to the show. Um, to say this is an honor would be an understatement. And I recognize, especially on today, this is a loaded question, but how are you?
2: Hmm. Um, thanks for having me on the show and for your persistence. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm fine. Um, this is, is a hard time to be in it's always a hard time to be black in this country of course and i am more blessed than most so um just trying to maintain perspective
1: yeah you know i think with that in mind i think i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about the state sanctioned shooting of jacob blake um and you know of course i have some questions about your work specifically in that uh, the 1619 project but i'd like to get your perspective on just the historically cyclical nature of Um, violence against black bodies and like in this moment right like what if anything do you think can happen to break this centuries-long pattern
2: you know a few months ago I was feeling a tinge of something that is very unusual for me which was a a slight tinge of hope Um, and that is gone and there's a reason I don't often feel it so I just looked at some data and despite months of protests, despite all of the back-to-back media coverage uh, following George Floyd, despite corporations having a so-called come-to-Jesus moment, the stats on police-involved killings have not changed. Uh, we are seeing just as many people killed by police in the, in the first half of this year as we saw last year. And I don't know what can force this country to change practices that have been 400 years in the making, Mm -hmm. Uh, that in this moment where we know everyone is recording, uh, where there have been months of protests against police violence, that an officer would, in the public view, grab a man who was not fighting him uh whatsoever and shoot him in the back seven times uh it's just uh, it's extremely discouraging because you would think at least in this moment there would be more care and more fear of consequences of treating black people uh like they're still in slavery and like their their lives don't matter but we we aren't seeing that and uh, it's it's hard
1: yeah you know i I think about the fact. So I'm a I'm a fairly new father myself. So I have a five month old daughter, and I think about the fact that he was shot seven times in the back in front of his three kids in, in his mm-hmm. car. And you know, I just I was holding my daughter at the time, or rather, I was split. I was splitting time, so I was cooking and I was feeding my daughter. And this just so happened to look at my phone and see that, and then just you know, I looked at Emory and I just started crying because I was just like, this is just the, the inhumanity of it. They just don't, you know, just. Anyway, I'm really curious as we continue forward, because I I think this project and the work that you do, you continue to do. Thank you for your work, by the way. Bless you for that is just highlighting how inhumanely we've been treated, because there's no way that you just treat human beings like this. And, you know, speaking of the work, um, you know, I've read stories about editorial bias and how black journalists will stop submitting certain stories that center black people because they keep getting shot down or any black and brown people. Um, your work beautifully and tragically captures our stories and experiences. I'm curious what the internal journey has been like for you to find your voice, and then how long it took before your pitched stories started getting greenlit by different editorial uh, powers that be.
2: Yeah, so I started writing about Black people as a high school journalist. That's why I joined my high school newspaper. I had a column called From the African Perspective, and I joined my high school newspaper because uh, as many of your listeners know my story at all, they'll know I, I was bussed into white schools as part of a voluntary desegregation order starting in the second grade. And as a high school student at a predominantly white high school where most of the black kids were bused from uh, the black side of town, I knew even then that we were being left out of the story and the power of you shaping the narratives for your own communities. And the only reason I ever wanted to be a journalist was to write about black folks, period. Uh, I was interested, you know, I'm a news junkie in general. I'm interested in the news. I read the news. I've always read the news. I used to read the paper with my father, but I wanted to be a journalist to write about black folks. And there were when I started my career, I had an excellent editor who really encouraged me uh, and supported me in wanting to write. I I was an education reporter and I was writing a lot about school segregation, school inequality and uh, disparate discipline that black students were facing. And I was encouraged to do that. Um, My next job was not the case. And I was penalized and punished for wanting to write about black stories and uh, or people of color in general and was told really that I was it was showing my bias that uh, these stories were not reflective of the readership of the newspaper and had story idea after story idea killed and this is during the historic Obama run for the presidency so Mm -hmm. if you can't be encouraged to write about race when the first Black man when, has a yeah. chance to be president. Right. You know when? When? When would be the right time? Right. And I remember I would pitch these stories, and my editors would say, "No, it's not. That's not a story." And then I'd see a story almost just like what I had pitched right in the New York Times, and I'd be like, "Okay, so it's not that I don't have good ideas. Right. It's that they're not interested in this coverage." And I'd nearly left journalism. I, I was stuck. This was at a time when uh, the the journalism industry was in a death spiral. Um, newspapers were laying off all over the country. And so there wasn't another job to be had. Like, you, if you had a job, you, you better keep it. And I was so depressed uh, because I didn't... That's what I got into journalism to do right. that I considered leaving the industry. And the only reason... I didn't leave the industry was I just couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do with my life. I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was in high school Mm -hmm. and really felt journalism was my mission. Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily, I I was rescued uh, when I was recruited to come to ProPublica. And I remember when Steve Engelberg, who's the editor of ProPublica, asked me to interview and then ultimately offered me the job. Uh, I had a very honest conversation with him. And I was like, if I cannot tell these stories i don't want to come like i'm not going to jump from this job to another job where i'm punished for wanting to write about race and stuff yeah yeah he assured me uh that i wouldn't be and and i wasn't and so propublica was really the place where i was able to develop the style of of writing and uh that that i've become known for
1: you know I, i think to to your point like you know Uh, With ProPublica and now, you know, the New York Times. I'm curious to know what it's like to write and work with an institution that publishes pieces and projects like the 1619 Project, but then also has puff pieces about Trump supporters and then editorial pieces like Tom Cotton's. Like, I'm curious, is there any is there any duality there that you have to uh, straddle or frustrations that you have to manage?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that's a rhetorical question because, of course, <laughs> right? I mean, this is this is the nature of uh, Black folks working in any white institution. is It is, uh, it, is the, it is the reality of Black people in America. Is there is always a duality, and yes, you can work at a place that, that simultaneously will uh, support with every resource a project like the 1619 Project and run. Um, the Tom Cotton editorial. And I think we all, as black and brown and Asian and indigenous people in these white spaces, mm-hmm. struggle with trying to produce the work that you think is important and necessary because of the platform. Yep. I could certainly work elsewhere, but there's no megaphone like the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So understanding that that platform does something for the work that you're trying to do, but also staying true to who you are in the work you're trying to do and fighting those internal battles to try to bring the actual institution in line with the work that you do. So I have, you know, my outward work, which gets published. And then I have my inward work, which is working with other folks to try to push the institution to be better.
1: What I find so intriguing about that is like, I mean, like it's activism on, in two fronts, right? Like you have, you have what you, what everyone sees and you have the, you have the work that you're doing uh, to push systemic change uh, internally. Can we talk a little bit about uh, portions of white academia's response to the 1619 project? Like to an extent, (laughs) I I would imagine negativity from members of the GOP as ignorant and dumb and doofy and goofy as they are. Don't shock you, but has any of it caught you off guard?
2: Yes, of course. Um, So I fully expected that uh, conservatives would not be pleased with the 1619 Project. And I also fully expected, because I've studied history for a long time and I understand the field of historiography, that there would be historians who didn't agree with all of our framing or who would quibble with, why did they put this in? Why did they not put this in? why do they focus on this and not that? that? That was all expected. Uh, what I didn't expect was that there would really be an orchestrated campaign, um, right. a small group of historians to not to say we wouldn't have done it that way, but to actually try to discredit the project. Mm-hmm. And because these historians, some of them are highly respected and regarded. I mean, I've read their work myself. Um, It it lended a credibility and really gave those who didn't have good faith uh, criticism of the project, who just didn't want the project to exist. It gave them the meat that they needed. And that's been really disappointing and disconcerting because the truth is not one and literally not one of that small number of historians who opposed the project has ever contacted me, ever. Um, Mm -hmm. They never said, hey, I think you got this fact wrong or, hey, maybe you should change this, Um, which is what you do in a normal circumstance. If you feel a reporter has misrepresented something or not got something right, Right. you contact that reporter and ask for a correction. I've never to this day received a single contact. And, And when the group of five historians who submitted a letter to the new york times against the project uh they included people on that email who weren't even involved uh men on that email who weren't even involved in the project but not me so i think that speaks to motivation is, is what i'll say
1: well so i was going to say so you know and continually you know we talk about just the role that black women play in like you know saving everybody and historically not having the advocacy and support that they need and to your point around just like the misogyny of and presumption that, you know, you're not even, you're being excluded in the work that you were actively that is your project. And then okay. and then on t- top of that, being simultaneously attacked and erased at the same time. Right. Like that's my question following up is like I would imagine. So, first of all, I think for me, like in this moment, Nicole, like what I've been thinking through and like coming to peace with is that it's not that people don't understand or don't see it. They just don't. A lot of them just don't care. Right. So for me, as opposed I used to getting this thing around, like trying to educate folks some years ago. And I just I think I'm just past that. Right. I'm curious, like, how do you manage the emotional labor of folks being intentionally obtuse, misogynistic, of course, racist? Like it just like you're you're so much in the in the spotlight. And as you continue to flex and grow, folks get madder. And so I'm just trying to I'm trying to I'm curious as to, like, what does your process look like as someone who is so actively in the forefront as a voice in this moment to take care of yourself?
2: Yeah. Who the hell knows? Um, (laughs) I I think that I'm a human being and some days I have dealt with it better than others. Some Mm -hmm. days I've dealt with it in ways that I'm proud of. And some days I've dealt with it in ways that I'm not. Uh, People forget, you know, and it's a good problem to have in some ways, but when, the bigger your platform gets, people think that somehow uh, you don't care anymore about mm-hmm. what people say or, yeah. or how people try to treat and attack your work or you personally. But but that's not true. I'm, you know, I'm just a girl from Waterloo and mm-hmm. never expected um, anybody would ever know my name. I just wanted to be a reporter. And I think that because of that, I also don't deal well with disrespect in the way that people who come, I think, from more privilege or yeah. don't come from like such a scrappy background, right. that things, things roll off their back in a way that they don't for me. Yeah. Uh, respect means a lot to me. And so I, 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 fight back. And I also understand that part of the kind of like vitriol that I get and my work gets is because someone like me should not be in the position that I'm in. Right. Like not just that I'm black and a woman though, that huge part of it, but I'm also a black woman who presents in a very specific way. I don't look the part that they think I should look. I don't talk the way they think I should talk. I don't defer the way that they think I should defer. Um, and all of these are intentional decisions right i'm not a stupid woman i know Absolutely. i know how i'm supposed to <laughs> yes. present and i and i refuse to and so i understand that it's all of that i think what i try to internalize is the venom of your enemies speaks to the importance of your work mm-hmm. and if this work wasn't meaningful if there wasn't some sense of fear, consternation about what this work could do, they wouldn't care about me and they wouldn't talk about me and they wouldn't write about me. And I, yeah. I have to always remind myself of that, that I'm doing this work for a mission and this is this is where it's helpful. Uh, Ida B. Wells is my spiritual godmother. Nothing that they could throw at me even comes close to what she had to deal with or even what my own grandmother had to deal with or my own father had to deal with. So I can deal with any of it.
1: Well, oh, you know, so it's... so. You know and we're going to talk about uh, my wife in a moment uh, but and it's going to make sense in a second but when that series that piece came out really seeking to discredit and undermine the 1619 project and i looked at those names because i have a network of academics as well and so a lot of the people that well some of the people rather that was in that group folks in my network knew personally mm-hmm. and like really highly regarded and i literally looked at it and i said wow nicole this is a lot of power like she has this much power that all these well-to-do white folks got together in a little google document and started typing away to do all this work and um i know i just that was my very first response was like wow this further lets me know that this is incredibly powerful and that she is seen as a threat to the institutions that be um so that's incredible thank you um you know kind of continuing about your work right like it's focused on segregation and its impact on marginalized populations. The New York times uh, recently helped produce nice white parents, which highlights a lot of the historic and present resistance to meaningful integration. It also reminds me of the interview you had on this American life some time ago, after your years of research, I have two questions like kind of back to back. And one, does it seem like meaningful integration is possible? And then two, do you believe that integration is necessary to achieve equity?
2: Mm. So um, Nice White Parents is excellent. And Hannah Joffe walt is uh, the producer I worked with on my This American Life piece on Michael Brown School District. Um, what I love about it is that she, I mean, I've, alf- I've always said white parents are the most powerful Uh, Force in any school district, whether they're in those schools or not, and that they often hold school districts hostage. They school districts simply won't do certain things because they're so afraid of losing white parents. And uh, I I haven't seen anything that has spent that much time really uh, exposing the way that that power operates with white parents who are supposed to be on your side. So, anyway, if if your listeners have not heard that podcast, uh, they definitely should. And I saw some folks who were like, "I don't know if I want to." Listen to that podcast because I just I just can't stand to hear another white person who's shocked that racism exists. Uh, Hannah is not naive Mm -hmm. and there's no sense of naivety like, oh, my God, I can't believe these white parents are doing this. Mm -mm. It's really like this is how we operate and I'm going to expose it. Uh, So it's great. Um, So now to your question. (laughs) So possible and probable, of course, are two different things. Mm -hmm. Do I think meaningful integration is possible? Of course, it's possible. We've rarely seen it, but it is possible. But in order for it to be possible, it has to be like Baldwin said, like white people have to give up whiteness. And we also have to understand how much resources have and everything from uh, amongst private citizens, businesses, local government, state government, and federal government went into creating the school inequality. Uh, still maintains the school inequality. And if you are going to undo that and create a truly equitable, integrated school system, you have to apply equal amounts of power and resources. And um, we won't, right? Like, the reason all of that power and influence was applied was because it was to the benefit of those who hold the power. And they're not going to apply the equal amount of resources Uh, in a way that doesn't benefit their power. So, possible, yes, probable, of course not. Um, In terms of, is it necessary? So, in a practical sense, absolutely. Nearly every school integration lawsuit that gets filed by Black parents or on behalf of Black parents initially begins as a simple lawsuit about equity and resources you've never seen large scale that black people are just dying to have their kids in majority white schools. And so these lawsuits typically begin by saying our schools are underfunded. They are not well resourced and we are suing because we just want the same resources in our schools as you allow for white schools. And then they begin that way and they end with a push for integration as parents come to realize that they will never get those resources without white kids. And that's just true. It holds true in every region of the country. It holds true in rural areas, suburban, urban. It doesn't matter. In a country where we still have to assert that Black Lives Matter, which is really Black Lives Matter too, uh, we know that the whole point of the separation is to deprive black kids of resources and equality. The whole point of the separation is to ensure white parents get an inordinate amount of resources. And we just have never shown a willingness to ensure that black kids and particularly poor black kids get the same quality of resources. And integration is, is the means to do that. There are things that we accept for black kids that you can't imagine ever accepting for white kids, period. And we don't. So I wish that it wasn't necessary, but we've shown no other way that we're willing to treat black kids the same as white kids, uh, unless they're in the same classrooms. And even then they're not treated the same.
1: Right. And that leads me, that leads into my next question. So I, I mentioned my wife, Candace earlier, she's an educator. Teach in high school and her district is starting remote i know you've addressed concerns about the feasibility and effectiveness of remote learning during this time yes you know as both a parent and a journalist who has specialized in an equity in an education what advice do you have for educators who want to provide a quality education from home to their students right now and what considerations do you think they should be keeping in mind
2: god this is so hard um and the public conversation has tried to make this simple
1: really binary. Uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not either open the schools or it's not safe. We can't open the schools and uh, either you care about uh, kids' education and and the inequality or you want teachers to die. Right. Like it's it is this is the hardest thing because one, we already have these structural inequalities that we have long, uh known existed that are clearly being exacerbated and there's no great answer um I know how much I struggled as a parent who is highly educated who has a ton of resources whose daughter has her own computer uh to really implement online learning and um The early data and research on the effects, particularly on black kids, are absolutely devastating. And black kids, they're already the furthest behind, so they have the most to lose. So I don't know what the answers are. I think where where my frustration has come is you cannot, as educators, simultaneously say it is not safe for us to open schools at all. But I also don't want to be forced to do live instruction. You can't do both of those things. There's got to be compromise and, and I think every parent has a newfound understanding for how hard teachers' jobs are, as we have had to try to play a, mm-hmm. a bit of that role in our own households. Um, but we're all struggling to adapt to online. I, I didn't expect that I would be working from home either and having my child set off the fire alarm while I'm giving a talk, which has happened. Um, but we have to really think about what this is going to mean for our kids in school districts that suffered to get proper funding for those kids before the pandemic, and now are going to be dealing with slashed budgets, Um, which I guess is my really long way of saying, I don't know what the answers are, but I can tell you what is planned right now is going to be devastating for low-income black and brown kids. And Mm. we have shown, I mean, look at the democratic convention and Republican convention, no one's even talking about what are we going to do for these kids
1: no no everything no one's
2: mm-mm. right you know it's like no one's talking about okay we need a massive funding package to mm-hmm. uh ensure that these kids are going to be able to catch up once this is all over to ensure these kids are going to have technology to ensure the internet is going to be connected high speed <laughs> to their homes like there's no one even talking about this and, yeah. and i know that what's going to happen is ultimately those kids are just going to have to deal with it, and yeah. they're going to deal with it by falling further and further behind and being even more disadvantaged after this than they were before.
1: It does seem both the RNC, well, the DNC for sure, in my from my perspective, and you know, listen to other folks like, largely focused on this imaginary or not so imaginary white conservative in the quote unquote middle of America who is debating voting for donald trump or not um and it reminds me of kind of going back to the initial question i had around this the cyclical nature of history a little while ago we had dr jason johnson on as a guest and we talked about that like just um how history repeats itself and as we prepare for one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime do you believe america is truly in a place to not re-elect donald trump in a fair election yes in a fair election. Okay.
2: But, yeah. Who knows if we're going to have a fair election. Uh, it does not bode well. But, yes, I think in a fair election, yes.
1: Okay. Uh, Miss Hannah Jones, this was phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for your persistence, and thanks for
1: having me on the show. No, God bless. goodbye alright goodbye alright you All right. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. Look, that was, I mean, my gosh. Y'all know what this is. Every single week, we're having... Incredible guests. Uh, And this one was, like I said, at the top an honor a privilege. Really excited. Make sure y'all check us out. Check out all the links in the show notes. Learn more about Nicole Hannah Jones if you're not familiar, if you've been living under a rock. But the thing about it is uh, when it comes to black media, even sometimes black media posted on huge platforms like The New York Times. We miss it so I want to make sure that y'all check all that out. make sure you check out nice white parents This is not even an ad I just got love for nice white parents. Shout out to the team over there and uh, till next time y'all this has been Zach. Peace
2: Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for musical elevation. Post production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcastgmail.com. At you can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and livingcorporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.